This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. Hey everyone, if this is your first time with us, uh, welcome, glad to have you. Uh, what, we're doing this, what we're doing this semester on Tuesday nights is we are reading the Sermon on the Mount together. And this is a sermon that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we're reading it together, we're seeing that Jesus invites us to live our lives with him. And that when we do this, he turns our world upside down and he shows us that life with him is actually right side up. And tonight, as we look at this passage that Susan just read for us, um, we're going to be talking about Jesus and the Bible. And I just want to say a quick thank you to Robert Cunningham. Much of what I'm going to say tonight is his. And the the question that Jesus poses to us tonight, the question he poses uh, to us is, how do we view the Bible? How are we to make sense of the Bible? This might be a letdown for you that we're going to talk about the Bible tonight. Um, Sorry, but uh, this is something that Jesus addresses here in this passage. And uh, just a question, what does your relationship with the Bible look like? It's, it's probably a complex relationship. The Bible is actually not one book. It's more of a library of books. It's 66 books written by 39 different, art, d- different authors in three different languages, written on three continents over a thousand years. And it's filled with poetry and stories, with memoirs, with wisdom literature, with apocalyptic literature, something that we don't really have anymore, with biographies, with genealogies. It's the best-selling book of all time. Um, What does your relationship with the Bible look like? Maybe you don't read it. Maybe you find it boring or strange or just weird. Maybe you do read it but you don't understand it. Maybe you read it and you, under, you do understand it, but you have serious problems with what it says. One pastor writes that we are living in a generational-wide breakdown of trust of the Bible. Christians are seeing the Bible as an obstacle to their faith rather than an aid to their faith. It's experientially difficult to trust the Bible. It's really easy for us to say, I like Jesus, but I don't care for the Bible. But as we'll see tonight, as we look at this passage, Jesus doesn't let us do that. Have you ever wondered what Jesus thinks about the Bible well, or how he relates to it? Well, that's what we have in our passage tonight. So I meet with college students. I meet with you um, over lunch or over coffee. And when I get together with you, what I usually do, uh, we, I start by just having a little small talk, ask you about your classes um, this is hypothetical. Let's say we're sitting down together and I'm asking you about your classes and you tell me, he's like, well, I've got this one class, John, um, that I don't really like. I don't, I don't really want to be a part of it. Um, it's, it's irrelevant to me. It's boring. It's, it's kind of a waste of time. And so I start asking you questions about this class. And as we talk, you say, well, you know, I haven't even really read the syllabus. I just skimmed it. And I've actually never been to the class. And I say, well, have you talked to the professor? Maybe they can help you. And he said, well, no. I haven't, I don't really plan to, and I'm probably not going to buy the books. And the more that we talk, this is hypothetical, the more that we talk, the more it sounds like you're not actually in the class. And if this was happening, I'd probably encourage you to drop the class or check to see if you were enrolled in it in the first place. And I think that that's often how we talk about the Bible. Never really read it, just skimmed parts of it, think it's boring, it's irrelevant, it's not really necessary for daily life, don't really give it the time of day. 
Last week, um, I talked about our culture being a culture of expressive individualism and how this has influenced everything in our lives, that it's in the groundwater of 21st century Western culture, and it flavors everything that we do. And part of the reality of this is that it has shaped us to be skeptical of anything that claims authority over us, to be skeptical of anything that challenges our way of life. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor um, writes that this has not always been this way, that there's been a shift over the past 500 years in how we relate to authority. He says that 500 years ago, we lived in what he's coined the age of authority, that when people were asking these questions of meaning and identity and purpose, they looked outside of themselves to outward authorities to answer these questions. And over the course of these 500 years in the West, now people, he says that, Taylor says that we're now in the age of authenticity, where instead of looking outside of ourselves to answer these questions, we look inside of ourselves to answer these important questions of meaning and identity and purpose. And this has led to a conception of freedom that when we define it, we say that freedom is being freed from any constraint that doesn't perfectly align with how I feel at any given moment. We see this everywhere. Um, in the 1992 Supreme Court decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, Justice um, Kennedy, in his majority opinion, he wrote this. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And as a result of this cultural reality that we swim in every day, we, we end up coming to the scriptures with a posture of skepticism and even cynicism. Cynicism. We're, we're ready to stand over it and to pick at it or to stand at arm's distance and to hold it away from us. But here in RUF, we're trying to do something different. We're learning what it means to be disciples of Jesus, what it means to apprentice our lives to Jesus, to let him define for us what it means to be human, to let him shape our understanding of freedom. We're trying to let him teach us what life in his kingdom looks like as we look to him as the way and the truth and the life. And if you're a Christian and you claim to be a follower of Jesus in this way, then you need to ask the question, how does Jesus, not how does the culture, but how does Jesus approach Scripture? How does he treat the Bible? How does he come to the Bible? And then ask, how does his view of Scripture shape my view of Scripture? I want to read to you a quote from John Mark Comer, who's a pastor in Portland, and he's helped me to understand more deeply what discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus looks like. He says this, He says, in the West, we've created a culture in the church where you can be a Christian and not a disciple of Jesus. Like somehow being an apprentice to Jesus is something for the extra serious, something you add to your salvation. It's this thing that happens after you get saved. And if you look at the Gospels, you see that Jesus had lots of disciples. He had the 12 uh, who became the apostles, but then he had this group, over 100 people who were his disciples. And there are these two major categories of people around Jesus in the Gospels. You had the disciples, this, this large group of people who were following Jesus. And then you had the crowds, this, this much, much larger group that was hanging around Jesus. And the crowds were composed of Jesus' family, um, people who were just curious, who were listening in, who were watching Jesus, watching his disciples, seeing how they lived. It also included the religious leaders that eventually put him to death. And lots of people moved in and out of this group. And I think this is important for us to consider, especially as we enter into the Sermon in the Mount together. Because before Jesus, as he's teaching, as these words are, are leaving his lips for the first time, 
There are these two groups of people around him, his disciples who are actively following him and the crowds, these who are hanging around and listening in and watching and are curious about Jesus and his disciples. And so a question that you need to answer for yourself is which group group do you find yourself in? Are you in the disciples or are you in the crowd? And I know disciple is a foreign word to us, not a category we use very often, but in the Greek, disciple just means student. But in the ancient world, being a student was very different than being a student today. Today, you're a student if you show up to class and you read the books and you take the tests. But discipleship is more than this. It is a relationship that continues outside of the classroom, outside of the lecture. Rowan Williams, in his book on being disciples, says this. He says, if you told a modern student that the essence of being a student was to hang onto your teacher's every word, to follow in his or her steps, to sleep outside their door, to not miss any pearls of wisdom that might fall from their lips, to watch how they conduct themselves at the table or in the street, you might not get a warm response. But in the ancient world, it was rather more like that. To be a student was to commit yourself to living in the same atmosphere and breathing the same air as your teacher. There was nothing intermittent about it. Hanging around, watching, sharing the same space, being together, learning by sharing life, looking and listening. And if that is what being a disciple or an apprentice looks like, if that's what following Jesus looks like, then his view of scripture is going to be important to you to clarify and to challenge our view of scripture. And as we look at this passage tonight, I want us to see two things, two things. First, Jesus shows us how he feels about scripture. He, he's gonna, he shows us how he feels about scripture. And in doing that, he is going to turn our understanding of authority upside down by clarifying and challenging our view of Scripture. So first, Jesus offers us a clarification of his view of Scripture. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law and the prophets were a common first century way of referring to the Bible, which was Jesus' favorite book. The law is the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets is shorthands for the entirety of the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures which we call the Old Testament. And Jesus says here, he comes in and he says, I have not come to abolish these. So what is he doing? Why is he saying this? So Jesus has just come onto the scene. He's extremely popular. He has healed and taught throughout the villages in first century Palestine where, um, where Israel was. Crowds of people are flocking to him to listen to him. And within the crowd, there's these two groups of people. There are the progressive group and the conservative group. And up until this point in Jesus and his ministry, he and his followers have been so radical and so defiant of the cultural norms that people begin to assume that Jesus is a revolutionary. He was the first century equivalent of being woke, and and people don't know what to do with him. And the conservative teachers are nervous about him and his theology. And then Jesus does what he often does. He challenges and he surprises both groups, both the progressives and the conservatives. See, when Jesus says that he has not come to destroy or to abolish, but to fulfill, he's actually clarifying and critiquing both sides. See, the ancient version of the progressive crowd, they wanted to tear down the scriptures. They wanted to dismantle and abolish them. And the ancient version of the conservative crowd wanted to keep things the way they were. They wanted to maintain the traditional first century Jewish way of reading and interpreting the Bible. And Jesus does something entirely different, and he upsets both of them. 
So one of the main takeaways here for you is to know that if Jesus doesn't challenge your partisan political loyalty, you're not actually listening to him. It's absurd to think that that Jesus would ever map onto a two-party system in the United States of America in the 21st century West. He just wouldn't, so he has to critique it. And the word here for abolish is this Greek word katalusai, which means to tear down or deconstruct, like to tear down a building. And so in the, in the Bible, it can mean disobey or disregard. And the progressives in the crowd, they are saying, we want Jesus to katalusai. We want Jesus to tear it down. And as soon as he says that he hasn't come to do that, they're disappointed. And then the conservative crowd is equally disappointed because what's the opposite of disobey? Obey. And they probably expected Jesus to say, I came to obey. But he doesn't say that. He said, I came to fulfill. And that's a radical claim. This word fulfill occurs 16 times in Matthew's gospel. And every single one of them occurs to the Christ or refers to the Christ or the Messiah fulfilling the scriptures, fulfilling everything that the Hebrew scriptures have to say, the Old Testament. So why is this a radical claim? I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is saying that the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, the entirety of the Old Testament is about him. And Jews in Jesus' day knew their scriptures. By the age of 12, all Jewish boys would have memorized the first five books of the Bible. And then a select few of them by the age of 15 would have memorized the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus is saying to this Jewish crowd that all of it comes true in him. That if they want to know what it's actually about, that they need to know him. That if they don't understand him to be the key that unlocks the true meaning of the scriptures, they and everyone they know and love are reading it wrong. Jesus is saying that the larger story of Israel and all of the smaller stories within it point to him, to his life and to his death and to his resurrection. That he is the true and greater everything. Every story, every image, every ritual, every promise, every prophecy, every longing, everything only makes sense in him. That he is the prophet greater than Moses. That he is the great King David's greater son. That he is the true priest in the order of Melchizedek, that he is the true Israel himself. God's mission, God's promise, God's heart are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. He is so connected to and in line with God's word that he himself is called the word. And as Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of the beautiful children's book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, as she says, every story whispers his name. And then Jesus goes on to say, Truly, I say to you, and we miss what's going on with this in our English translation, but in Greek, it's this word, amen. And those who would have been listening would have been challenged by this too. Because everyone who spoke with authority in regards to scripture always pointed to God as the authority, right? They would say, thus saith the Lord. That's how the prophet spoke. Thus says God, thus says the Lord. But Jesus is here saying, thus saith me. He's saying that my authority doesn't come from outside of me, but that it resides within him. That Jesus in himself has divine authority. Verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Iota is the smallest Hebrew letter and uh, the dot was the smallest Hebrew mark. And so he's saying not one dot of an I and not one cross of a T is going to pass away until I fulfill everything. Jesus critiques our view of scripture. 
And then he does the second thing. He challenges our view of Scripture. Look at verse 19. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We need to hear the weightiness of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, is that, is saying that there's some kind of reciprocal relationship between how you relate to your Bible and your experience of God and his kingdom. And there's a play on word in the Greeks here. Uh, it read, in the Greek, it reads, if we, belittle, if we belittle scripture, we will be little in the kingdom. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is saying that if we explain away the least of these commands, we will become the least. But if we practice them, if we love them and we teach them and we share them, then we will be great in the kingdom. One commenter says that God's treatment of you will mirror your treatment of the Bible. If you take even one command from the Bible and you explain it away or ignore it or make it say what you want it to say, you will relegate yourself to the margins of the kingdom and you will never reach the full potential Jesus has for you. But if you take these seriously, it will set you on a road to transformation and you will grow and mature into a great one and the beautiful new world that is coming through Jesus. So a question for you, how are your teachers and your pastors and your campus ministers teaching you to obey scripture? Is it to obey and to interpret and hold high and to love them? Or is it to dissect and take apart and undo and reinterpret? And this matters because the Bible doesn't claim to just be a religious book, but it's the blueprint for life in the kingdom. And if you mess with the blueprint, you attack the integrity of the structure. I remember the first time that I read um, Romans 9, which is this particularly tricky chapter in Romans, and I just wanted to throw the book across the room. I, I just thought, like, I can't believe that this is in here. And I've talked with some of you about wanting to just get rid of the Old Testament. Because the things that you read in there and you don't want to be in there. And friends, I would love to hear your questions. I would love to get coffee with you. And that's why our staff is here to meet with you, to hear your questions, to wrestle with this together. Um, Because we want to take your questions seriously. And there's actually an impulse in each of us to do this deconstruction and this teardown, to, to catalucide. This impulse in us to dissect and to cut out the parts that we don't like. We have this impulse to dodge the tricky bits and to ignore the high call that it puts on our heart and our life and to hide the parts that embarrass us or sound culturally unpopular. And here at Wake, you're taught to be good, critical readers. That's a very valuable skill. But it can become very easy and common for the default posture of critique and cynicism to be our default mode as disciples of Jesus. And friends, there is nothing more antithetical to the kingdom of God than a posture of cynicism. And that's why Jesus says that we have to be like children to enter into the kingdom. I don't know if there's anything more opposite to cynicism than being childlike. Jesus says we need to become like children. Being cynical is easy. Being self-protective is easy. Jesus is inviting you. He's inviting us to be childlike in faith and to walk towards him, trusting in his word. And this temptation to not trust the word is not new. Let me remind you that when God made the world and he made the first humans, Adam and Eve, he gave them his word. And in Genesis 3, we're told that a serpent enters the story and he tempted our first parents by telling them a lie, that God is not good and he does not love you. 
And that serpentine whisper echoes and reverberates through the pages of Scripture and into our own hearts and minds. Did God really say that? Does God really want you to do that or to not do that? And a question that you must answer for yourself is, will you consider it your right to define your own definitions of right and wrong and good and bad? Or will you entrust yourself as a creature to the good and wonderful and wise creator who knows what you're made for? Friends, Jesus invites you to trust. Andrew Wilson, in his short book, Unbreakable, writes this. He says, ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and am following him. So if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Friends, Jesus invites us not just to discuss what Scripture says, but to do it. To take seriously the closing words of the Sermon on the Mount, which says that the wise person is one who hears these things and does them. This is saying that you can make your life goal to be a personal translation of Scripture. Which is why Jesus naturally moves into verse 20 with this invitation where he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is challenging. I know it's challenging, but it's also an invitation into this thing called greater righteousness, which many say is what this sermon is all about. His invitation into greater righteousness is an invitation into this whole new way of being human, a whole new way to live. Righteous is not a word that we often use, but we can think about it as in terms of goodness or wholeness or integrity, the ethical and comprehensive beauty of our lived lives. And this would have been shocking. The Pharisees, the conservative crowd, were professional Bible teachers who lived in outward intense, an intense outward commitment to the scriptures. And Jesus is inviting us to have a greater righteousness even than them. Here's what he's not saying. He's not calling you to obey more, but to obey deeper. He's saying, I want more than just surface level engagement. I want your heart. I want every part of you. And that's why in the next few sections that we're going to read together, we see Jesus inviting us into this deeper obedience, a deeper way of living, into a more comprehensively beautiful way of being human together. Jesus is going to talk about anger and lust. He's going to talk about our relationships, how we handle our words, how we interact with our enemies, how we care for the poor, how to make sense of our ambition and our anxiety and our affections. And all of it culminates in Matthew 5, 48, where he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And he's not talking about perfectionism here. That's not what he's saying. It's this Greek word teleos, which means complete or whole or integrity. And Jesus is saying, follow me into life. Follow me into abundant life. Quit living the double life. Quit acting like you're someone you're not. Quit performing. Quit pretending. Be with me, and I will show you where life is found. And this is the same Jesus who says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is the basis of all this. The heart of everything is the reality that Jesus himself is the one who has come to fulfill this thing called the law. He is the center of the story. 
So in him, in relationship with him, in union with him, it is by his grace, through faith in his power, in his strength, as we learn to repent, as we learn to forgive and to practice faith and to practice obedience. As one pastor says, as we do this, the law is no longer standing over you like a hammer, but under you, like a red carpet inviting you to live a true, abundant life. So I want to return to our question for tonight. What role does the Bible have in your life? How do you talk about it? How do you treat it? And by way of application, I don't really have like a a pinpoint application for us tonight, but more of a a general um, way that we apply this together in RUF. And I just want you to know that this is what we're about in RUF, is taking the Bible seriously. That's why we read it and study it at large group. That's why we read it and study it in small groups. Um, that's why in our daily prayer, we, we hear it and we respond to it. We let God get the first word. That's why this is the content of our freshman fellowship. And everything we do, we want to read and hear and listen to God as he speaks in his word. And the reason for this, the reason that we do this together is that we're learning together. We're learning to say that there are lots of voices. There are lots of voices screaming at us. Screaming at you all of the time, some out there in the culture, some in your own mind, screaming at you, voices of condemnation and accusation, voices of direction, saying, do this or do that. And in RUF, we want to say, what is the true voice? What is the most powerful voice that gets to determine who you are and how you live? What is the voice that gets to determine how you make decisions and what is good and what is true and what is beautiful? And in RUF, what we're saying is that we want it to be Jesus' voice. This doesn't mean that we have all the answers. It doesn't mean that we still don't have tons of questions. But it means that we are committed to being together, to asking hard questions, to not giving up as soon as we get frustrated, but that we're going to move deeper in together. The Bible's intended to be wrestled with and debated, and that's what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. But the goal is not just information, but it's transformation that we would experience abundant life with Jesus. Which is why St. Augustine says it so well, where he says, whoever thinks that they understand the scriptures, or at least even part of the scriptures, that in some way does not lead to the double love of God, love of God and love of neighbor, does not understand them at all. We are committed to saying that if we're going to take the Bible seriously, it is going to make us better lovers of God, better lovers of ourselves, better lovers of our neighbors, and better lovers of the world. And here's my hope for us, that you would recognize what we need to hear most is his voice, to follow him and to have abundant life, because you can never be bored following Jesus. During the pandemic, um, my kids have been listening to lots of audiobooks and listened through Harry Potter, I think, twice already, and also have been listening through C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you're unfamiliar with Narnia, it is a series of children's books that take place in this, uh, this enchanted world called Narnia, where these, these children, these four children, um, Edmund, Susie, Edmund, Susan, Edmund, sorry, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, these four children together um, go and, and fall into this, this alternate world together. And in the book Prince Caspian, Uh, They're traveling together, and they don't know where they're going, and they're on this journey, and uh, it's stressful, and they keep going, and they keep coming to these these decision points, these forks in the road where they have to go choose one way to go or the other way, and everyone, they don't know which way to go. 
And there's this one that they come to and one road is up this gorge and it's steep and it's scary and it looks really difficult. But then the other way goes down and it looks easy. And um, while they're standing there at, the, at this, this fork in the road, trying to figure out, debating which way to go, Lucy sees and hears Aslan. She hears Aslan. And Aslan in Narnia is the Christ figure. He's this, lo- this, this lion um, who is the Christ figure. And, and Lucy sees and she hears Aslan. And Aslan is calling them and inviting them upwards. And Lucy's the only one who can see and hear him. And together they make the decision, the older siblings win the day, and they end up going down the easy road. And it turns out to be a dead end and turns out to be really difficult. And they turn around and go back the other way. And they go to bed that night. And in the middle of the night, Aslan comes to Lucy. And he asks her what happens. And she looks into Aslan's eyes and she says, I know I don't need to blame them. And then Aslan responds and he says this to her. He says, you saw me and you heard me, did you not? And do you not realize that if you would come with me, you would never be alone? And for the remainder of the journey, Lucy continues to follow him. At first, he's difficult to see and difficult to hear. But every time she follows him and hears him, he becomes easier to see and easier to hear. And then the older siblings begin to see and hear him too. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus invites us to follow him into this intimate, dynamic love relationship with the God of the Bible. As we follow him, we will see clearer and clearer with every step of obedience along the way. And we will know that he is actually with us. The reason we obey, the reason that we take scripture seriously is to be with Jesus, to find true and abundant life in him. Every small step of obedience leads to life with Jesus and a clearer vision of Jesus and life in his kingdom. So hear the call of Jesus the one who entered into the story of scripture and human history to fulfill it for you, whose obedience to God's word got him killed, his life for your life, so that you could follow him into abundant life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for speaking so clearly to us in your word that you did not come to destroy or abolish, and you didn't even come to obey, but you came to fulfill all that is in the Old Testament for us so that we might have life in you and that your life might extend to the world. Thanks for these friends, Lord. um, I pray for them as they are wrestling with how you engage with the Bible, your love of the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would help them, help them with their questions and their doubts, the things that are difficult, uh, the things that are hard to read and hard to hear and don't make sense. Um, Lord, help us. Help us to hear your voice, your voice of love, as you call to us from your word by your spirit. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Friends, you have a good king in heaven who loves you and has given himself for you. Hear this good word from his throne. May the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Go in peace.